And we will look today at Psalm chapter 24 and, and what the psalm, psalmist David has uh, written down for us and, and, and looking forward to this coming King of glory. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, we will have it on the screen. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, as we try and remind you every week, you can find a, a copy of God's Word in the pews around you. Uh, there should be some blue Bibles around you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, feel free to take one of those and, and utilize that at home as well. But if you would stand with me now for the reading of God's Word, Psalm chapter 24, starting in verse 1. Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Dear God, as we come now to this most beautiful and poetic passage, as, as we look at what David has written for us, Lord, we come now and ask that as we read this psalm, you would help us as believers on this side of the cross, that we would see this psalm truly and rightly and rejoice in the fulfillment of it that we see in Christ Jesus. I pray, God, that as we study, that you would guide us, that you would guide my speech, that you would open up the ears and the hearts of those who hear today, that your word would have its full effect and its intended purpose today as you work by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, in our minds. And I pray, Lord, that we might be all the more emboldened and encouraged by the King that we serve as we study him and see him here today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is truly one of those glorious passages where it seems that, that whatever words I could, I could offer to, uh, to speak to a passage like this, a text like this, would just utterly fall short and, and almost do more harm rather than good, and yet here we are uh, anyway as we study this psalm, and, and my hope is that we might be encouraged, that we might help to, that we might dig into this psalm, see it clearly, see it rightly, understand it more fully, and see the beauty herein as we read it and study it together. I was thinking this, this week about, uh, about when we read psalms like this and when we read the scriptures, we, we get a picture of Christ. And there are all kinds of opinions and all kinds of, uh, of objections and, and, and debates over the usefulness of images of Christ, pictures of Christ and their, their usefulness in worship and their uh, their value in the home and these kinds of things. And 
Uh, and to just be a full disclosure, I am of the opinion that uh, I think that, that images of Christ have, uh, have no place in our, in our worship and I think are, are suspect certainly. And uh, I, I would point you to the, to the second commandment uh, in, if you would like to understand that more and, and find out more of why I feel that way uh, and yet don't, uh, don't push people too hard on it, I'd be happy to have that conversation with you. But at the very least, one thing that I think we can say for sure is that most of the images, most of the pictures, the paintings, the, the uh, uh, mosaics, the stained glass, the, the images that we see of Christ, most of them really do him very little justice, I think. And I'm not going to get into the whole debate of whether or not we should be painting a European Jesus or, or more of a Middle Eastern Jesus or, or, or whatever that case might be. I think we should avoid painting Jesus altogether. But most of the paintings that we see, and if you're like me and you grew up and had paintings of Jesus and pictures of Jesus in your home as I did, I think most of them, if nothing else, don't do him any justice even from a Western perspective. All the pictures of Jesus that I can think of at the, at the most, and, and I think certainly we could all agree to this, certainly do a great job of effeminizing Jesus, of making him uh, look very frail, very weak, very, very tender, like the kind of, like a, I think some have said, a, a, a Pantene hair model, almost, the way he's depicted in many of the pictures and, and paintings that we see of him today, and and that's sometimes sort of the better scenario. And other times he's, he's depicted in ways that are sometimes utterly incorrect or even blasphemous or idolatrous. But by and large, and I don't mean to open up a can of worms, but I have, I think pictures of Jesus are, are, are oftentimes problematic more than anything because rarely are they doing an adequate job, a full job of truly showing us and informing us as to who Jesus is. And we don't realize sometimes how much those pictures, how much those things shape our, our thinking about Jesus, but they really do, more than we might like to think. Rather than letting paintings, sculptures, mosaics influence how we conceptualize Jesus, I would propose that it's far better for us to let our thoughts about Jesus be formed and informed by the Bible and by the Bible alone. Even here in the Old Testament, as David, along with many other Old Testament writers, prophesy about the coming Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of God's people, we see from them, even as they speak in prophecies, we see a better and more full picture of who Christ is than any paintings could ever give us, than any sculpture could ever do for us, and arguably... They were writing these things from the Old Testament, prophesying about a Christ, about a Messiah, of whom they, they had a very limited understanding. It's only on this side of Christ's work here on earth that we really see the writings that they put down for us, the, the words that they penned, and even this psalm in its fullness. Arguably, David did not fully understand or comprehend the, the way in which this prophetic psalm was going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But we have for us presented here in the scriptures a right and good picture of Jesus, not as some frail, long-haired, silky, smooth, weak, I don't know, Jesus, right? 
and I, I don't mean to harp on it too much, but that is often the way Jesus is depicted. But how is Jesus depicted here in this psalm? He is depicted as the king of glory. We, it's right for us to understand Jesus as gentle and lowly. The Bible describes him as that way. It's right for us to un- understand Jesus as kind and merciful and as one who cares for the weak, who cares for the brokenhearted, who cares for the oppressed. But never should we view Jesus in that way while dispensing with these pictures of Jesus as a mighty king, as a conqueror, as a judge. For indeed, that's who Jesus is. This Psalm of David, which is clearly messianic in its nature, gives us a beautiful picture at the Messiah who will come and what it is that he will accomplish. And we're gonna work our way through this text looking and and trying to understand how David lays out this picture of Christ for us. And we start in verses one and two as he puts before us the greatness and the sovereignty of Yahweh. Look at verses one and two and what David says about God. He says, the earth is the Lord's, the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. We see here in verses one and two, a a few things already and immediately established as true about God as David writes this psalm. The first thing that we see in verse one is that God is the owner of and has authority over everything and everyone that exists. That there is nothing in all creation that is outside of God's authority, that is not his, that he does not have and exercise ownership over. All things belong to God, to Yahweh. That he is Lord over all and the authority over all. And what that also means, as verse number two points us to, and and why it is that he is Lord over all and sovereign over all and is owner of all, it's because he has created all things. He is the author of all things and therefore has all authority over things created on heaven, on earth, whether living, whether breathing, whatever. All things are under his authority. Yahweh, the Lord, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world, and those who dwell therein. Therefore, what this should lead us to conclude and understand is that God, having authority, has the authority and has the right to call people to account, as all authorities do. Just as we recognize the authority, the authorities over us, the government, has the right to call us to account when we disobey laws, when we fail to pay our taxes, when we are disobedient to the government. We rightly understand that the government has the authority to call us to account, to send the IRS to our door, to send the police to our door. All the more, the God of the universe who has created all things and has authority over all things has every right to call his creation to account. He has the right to demand worship from his creation. And indeed he does, doesn't he? We learn of God, from God himself, that he is a jealous God, one who deserves all worship and is rightly to be worshiped, and one who demands our worship. It always strikes me as funny when when people learn these things about God, hear these things about God and and Christianity, Christianity and what the Bible teaches 
and they reject God because of it. They reject God because they don't like that God and that God's word holds them to account for their sin. They will just reject him and look for a God who is more friendly to their desires and to their proclivities and to their inclinations. Have you ever met people like this who say, yeah, I tried Christianity out, but it just wasn't for me, you know? Almost every time it isn't for them because they feel like it demands too much of them. Because it doesn't correspond with their desires, with their inclinations, and with their proclivities. And so they say, you know what? Easy. I'll just switch to a different religion. I'll worship another God, one who is fine with the way I want to live my lifestyle, one who's, who's okay with the things that I do and doesn't condemn them as sin, who doesn't condemn them as opposed to the law that he has laid down. Easy peasy. There's all kinds of religions out there. There's all kinds of gods out there that you can choose from. And certainly the, the mindset of the world is that all of them lead to the same place. If there is a God, we're all going to get there eventually, right? That, it's utter ludicrous. It's, it's foolishness. As if this makes the truth about God any less true. That when people hear the truth and say, oh, oh that, that God is one who created all things, has authority all things, and he's going to hold me account? Pfft. Yeah, no good for me. I'm out. I'll go do something else. The truth still remains. God is still sovereign. Any God who you would worship as over all things, creator of all things, as truly God, will demand these things. And the one true God who has created us has demanded these things. Yet people are like, are like children who, who seek to hide from other people by covering their face, thinking that if they can't see the other person, then essentially they've disappeared. They can't be seen. If I can't see you, you can't see me. And so the world, like children, often covers their eyes, covers their faith to the truth revealed in the scriptures about who God is and what he demands of us as though that makes it go away. This understanding, though, of who God is informs us rightly. It informs us rightly that God is sovereign over all, that he is ruler of all. It helps us, and indeed, I think, as we should, it helps us to be directed to understand the magnitude of God, the, the bigness of God, something that we miss sometimes. And yet, it's one of those concepts that as you, as you teach children about who God is, one of the most important starting places, and, and I think understandable things for children that you can do, is teach them about the bigness of God, about his gravity. When you drive to, to places and see mountains and see skies and see stars and moons and, or the Grand Canyon, to point to children and say, look how amazing that is. Isn't that awesome? And they get it. That's amazing. Sometimes children are, are, are more enamored and more impressed with those things than we as adults are. We've gotten used to them, right? But to a child, these things that, that are so big and so amazing and so huge to then say, you know, God created all these things. This ocean that you stand before here as the waves come crashing in, the Lord scooped this thing out with his hands. This Grand Canyon, that's like the Lord taking his fingernail and just carving it into the earth. It's nothing to him. He is so huge. He holds all things in his hand, all things. And it's right for us to see God in this way, as big, as beautiful, as majestic, and as authoritative and holy. 
Because at the same time that this truth about God being big and impressive, it makes us stand in, in awe of him. It's also a truth that leads us directly to the question that David asks in verse three, where he says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? What a good question, David. If this is true of God, if he is over all things, the authority over all things, the creator of all things, sovereign of the universe, then who could ever ascend his hill? Who could come into his presence? What is the, the hill in view here? Now, we, we, we don't maybe know exactly what David has in mind because this psalm was written in a particular context to a, a particular and immediate audience. Some have speculated that it was written to, uh, to the time when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back to Jerusalem, and, and perhaps that is the, uh, the, the hill upon which they are, they are ascending. But I think the language here is not uninformed, it's not unintentional, and I think I would argue that it's very similar to the language that we see in Exodus referring to Mount Sinai, which is called in Exodus the mountain of the Lord or the hill of the Lord where Yahweh descended in a cloud and in thunder where the law was given to God's people that is the hill most likely being referenced here in this question it sort of changes the way we view the question or at least affects it a little bit right when you think of of Sinai as that hill who shall ascend the hill of the Lord who can come to Mount Sinai? Who can come to this place, this mountain that, if you recall, was, was ominous and terrifying to the people? This place where, where people weren't allowed to just come up. In fact, if you were to even touch the mountain, you, were be, you would be killed. It reminds me of, of in Pilgrim's Progress, when Christian, after, after receiving the, the bad advice from Mr. Worldly Wise Man, who tells him, hey, that path that evangelist sent you on, way too hard. Way too many difficulties. I'll show you a better and easier way. It's just right over there, past that hill, past that mountain. It's right over there to that place, that city called Morality. There you'll find a man named Legality. And there you can be freed from your burden. You don't have to carry this thing around any longer. You don't have to walk through all these challenges. Just make your way past that hill, right around that hill. You'll find the place where your burdens will be removed. And every bit of that was a lie. But one of the most important things that we see is as, as Christian is making this trek, as he's walking, as he's following the bad advice of Mr. Worldly Wise Man, and he comes close to this hill, the closer he comes to this hill, representing Mount Sinai, the more the hill hangs over him, and he fears for his life that it is about to crush him. The more the clouds overtake him, and the fire scares him, and the closer he gets the more the weight of his burden increases. That's what happens when Christians come to Mount Sinai, when, when human beings come to Mount Sinai to seek to be freed from their burdens. They are not freed from their burdens. Rather, their burdens increase. No hope is to be found there. No hope is to be found in obedience to the law, for we cannot ascend that hill, for we are disobedient, and we are sinful. And like Christian for Mount, Mount Sinai for us is only a place of weight and anguish and despair. We also, I think, 
get some temple language as well at the, at the second part of verse three. In the second part of verse three, he says, and who shall stand in his holy place? A reference to the place where the people were cut off. The holy of holies in the temple, this place where there was a veil. Not just a veil as in like a, a, a wedding dress veil, this thing that's just sort of sheer and you can see through it. No, no, no. A thick, weighty curtain, substantial, that barred entrance into the presence of God, that barred entrance into the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies. The question being asked here is, who can enter into this place? And if all of this is true of God, then truly the question is, who can ascend the hill? Is his presence accessible to anyone? If we stop here, we would conclude rightly, wouldn't we? No, it is not accessible to any one of us. And yet the answer comes in the next two verses as to who will ascend the holy hill and who his presence is accessible to. Verses four and five read like this. They say, who has clean hands and a pure heart? He who has a clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the one who will ascend the hill of the Lord, who will enter into the holy place. Here we have the description of this one who is able. And for human beings, we hear this description and we survey our lives and we realize that this cannot be talking about us. Consider verse four alone. He who has clean hands. The term clean hands here could, could rightly be understood and translated as innocent hands. Not a single one of us in here has innocent hands, has committed no acts of sin, is clean from all these things. Not a one of us in here. It's almost like this, this verse is given to say, here is the one who can ascend the hill. Here is the one who can enter into the presence. And immediately the answer comes and it says, none of you. I can't ascend the hill. You can't ascend the hill because none of this is true of you. It, it reminds me of a, of a scene from an old John Wayne movie it's called John Wayne and the Cowboys. One of my favorite John Wayne movies where John Wayne is, is left as this rancher who's got all these cattle that he needs to get to the market. And he's left because of this gold rush that has caused all the men, all the men in the town are out looking for gold, chasing riches. And all that is left in this small town, this ranch community, is the women and the children. And so he goes to the schoolhouse and begins to recruit the young boys to help him drive the cattle so that he might make his money so that he might make a living. And he, as he's recruiting these boys and, and, and one of them asks the question, it's the, one, the smallest one of all of them, the youngest one. He says, he says uh, are, are all of us invited to come? You see, for these young men, this was an opportunity, uh, opportunity to earn money for their family, right? As their fathers were out chasing gold, their families were left back there and this was for them an opportunity to provide. And he says, are all of us Allowed to come? Can all of us have a job? And, and John Wayne says, come up here to the smallest one. And he comes up there and he stands him in front of the chalkboard and he draws a line about an inch over his head. You have to be this tall to come. Rough, devastating. 
right? The, the story concludes, or that, that scene concludes with two of the older boys looking at each other and then going up there because earlier in the scene, what John Wayne, his character, didn't realize is that in order to make the chalkboard more visible to the back of the class, those older boys had put a few books under the legs of the chalkboard. So they walk up there, remove the books, line drops down just slow enough where this young man can join the, the cattle drive. Don't read too much into that part of the analogy. Let's just stick to the part where the line is above his head, right? Because that's where we are left at this point, right? We are left reading this, saying, who can ascend the hill? And concluding, not me, not you, at least not as we stand now. Clean hands here, these innocent hands, are describing the works we do, the actions that we do. The next description that we see is a pure heart. And that is describing the source of our actions, the source of our deeds, the source, the source of the things that we do. In other words, even if you think that your actions are pretty good, I don't know who in here would say that, but if you would be in here and say, you know what? I think I've got pretty clean hands. I don't think I've done too much. Then let's dig a little deeper. How pure is your heart? Is your heart pure? Your motivations, your thoughts, your intentions, are they pure? None of us in here can conclude, yes, they are pure. In fact, this is a point that Jesus sort of digs into and emphasizes in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? He says, the law says this. But then he says, but here's what I say. If you even look at a woman lustfully, you have sinned. You have committed adultery with her in your heart. If you even hate your brother, then you have murdered him in your heart. That even if the work of our hands might seem clean, when we dig deeper, we realize that our impurity of our heart, that alone is enough to condemn us and for us to be guilty and unworthy of the presence of God. None of this is true of us. Pure hands, clean hands, a pure heart. But it is true of one who has come. Jesus, the Messiah, the only one who has ever lived and had clean hands and a pure heart. He has accomplished what is necessary to ascend the hill because his hands are clean. His heart is pure. He can ascend the hill. He can come into the very holy place, the very presence of God. But he has not accomplished it for himself only. But as verse six now tells us, we see a shift, right? A shift in verse 6 from talking specifically about this one who will ascend the hill to the generations. Verse 6 says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Verse 6 tells us that all that is spoken of the one here who would ascend the hill will be true of those who seek him. Christ by his obedience, by his death, and by his resurrection, has made us righteous. That he has ascended the hill, and he has done so not just for himself only, but that he brings us with him by the work that he has done. We see the fulfillment of this as Saul writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 19. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That is by Adam's disobedience, right? Sin entered the world and all of us are sinners. All of us are condemned. 
All of us are guilty. But then he says, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. By Christ's obedience and his finished work, we have now been declared righteous. In Christ, we who are sinners are counted as righteous, not because of works done by us or in us, but because, or not because our hands are actually clean or our hearts are actually pure. Because when we all consider this and we ask this question of ourselves, we know the answer is no. Are your hands clean? Are your, is your heart pure? In other words, have you sinned against God, whether in thought or deed? The answer, my friend, my church family, my brother and sister is yes, you have. And therefore, you are, your hands are not clean. Your heart is not pure in a, in a real, by real I mean uh, in yourself sense. And yet we see that by faith, in a forensic sense, that is when the Lord looks at you, he sees you as righteous, he sees your heart as pure because of what Christ has done on our behalf. We are counted as righteous and considered clean of hand and pure of heart and therefore able to come to God because Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, is granted to us, is counted to us by our faith, just as Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And this is glorious news of what Christ has done, of what the the psalmist David here is predicting and what we now see that Christ has fulfilled. And it's worthy of celebrating. And that's exactly what David does as he writes in verses seven through 10, this most amazing, glorious celebration that he gives here. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory, he asks. The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. You can feel the excitement, the weight, the gravity of this celebratory song as the psalmist rejoices in the king of glory, the one who has opened the doors to the holy place and has entered in, saying, lift your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Notice the way earlier in the psalm the one who ascended the hill is spoken of as one distinct from Yahweh. This is an important point. We see earlier on in verse five, what do we read? He says, he, talking about the one who will ascend the hill, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He will receive blessing from the Lord. In other words, there is the one who will ascend the hill who will receive blessing from Yahweh. They are distinct, right? And yet, what do we see now talking about the same person who will ascend the hill? Who is this person? The question is asked, who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Again, we don't know if David fully comprehended the gravity of what he was writing here. 
But what we do know is that as we see it now, we see that even in this psalm, the incarnation is being expounded. The truth is being revealed that Jesus, while he is the one who receives blessing from God, and then we are applied those blessings, at the same time, Jesus is God. The God-man, Jesus Christ, the one who came and descended God in the flesh. This glorious truth is now being expounded for us here at the end of Psalm chapter 24. There is seen here a, a prophetic telling of the nature of the Messiah that would come, that he would not merely be a man, but that he would be God incarnate, truly God and truly man, very God, very man. Christ is described here as a conquering warrior king in a beautiful way. He says in, in verse 10, who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The word host here, most likely referring to an army. That he is the conquering Lord who has come victorious to sit on his throne. Indeed, that is where Christ sits now. On his throne, at the right hand of God, ruling all things. What a glor glorious refrain we see. Especially this one repeated in 7 and 9. Where he says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. What did David have in mind when he spoke of these doors, of these ancient doors, these gates? We can't really say with certainty. Perhaps the, uh, the gates entering Jerusalem, perhaps the, the temple gates. But certainly as we read the context of the psalm, we see its messianic nature. We understand that what is being described here is nothing less than entrance into the very presence of God, which Christ has secured because he is the conquering king, because he, have, he has done what is necessary to ascend the hill. And we, those who trust in him, those who follow him, enter into God's presence as well, as long with, along with Christ. And not only has Christ ascended, ascended into heaven, ascended this great hill, but he also will return one day. And he will return, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king, as a judge, one who will judge all the earth. I'm glad we sang Psalm 98 today, and we, or Joy to the World, excuse me, uh, which is about Psalm 98, because I find it interesting, as, uh, as some have pointed out, and I think rightly so, that it is, it is sort of curious that we sing uh, Joy to the World as a Christmas song, singing about the first advent of Christ, because if you read Psalm 98, what you'll actually see is that it is not a reference to Christ's first coming, but to his second coming. I think Aaron talked about this a couple weeks ago. Psalm 98 concludes this in verses 6 through 9, where the psalmist says, With trumpets and the sound of the horn make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. And then this is what verse 9 says. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness 
and the peoples with equity. You know, even secular artists, secular people in the world sing joy to the world and, and seem to love the song, but they miss the irony of the reality that apart from Christ, this psalm is not a joyful song for a human being. Because God is coming and he will judge the world with what? With righteousness and the peoples with equity. For all the sort of understandings and, and thoughts about what the word equity means in our culture today, many who use that word would probably not describe it or not think of it in, in a good way when they see it used here in Psalm 98. When they see what it truly means that the Lord will come and he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. That is not a good thing to hear for those who are separated from Christ. This is a song of joy for God's people. For indeed, as far as the curse is found, that's how far his mercy will extend. That's how far the curse will be undone. But we look at the world now and we say, well, this song is interesting because the curse isn't completely undone. We still see the effects of it. There are still thorns that infest the ground. But one day, all of that will cease. That the curse will no longer be found. And for us, we rejoice in that in Christ Jesus. We rejoice because he will return one day and he will come as a conquering king and as a righteous judge of the earth. But for those who fail to understand that, maybe, maybe you will have an opportunity this year around a, a friend or a family member who, who when the song Joy to the World comes up, maybe that could be your opportunity to warn them that while this is a joyful song to those who are in Christ, to those who, re who reject it, this is not exciting news. This is not joyful news. It is news of judgment and indeed news of wrath that is to come upon unrighteousness. All will indeed, in the end, bow before this king. Bow before this king of glory. Paul Washer, as he as he preached on this very psalm, pointed out, and I think it's something maybe we've heard before, but it is right to recognize that there are, there are some, sometimes in Christian circles and evangelicalism, we talk about this idea of, of making Jesus Lord of your life, right? And Paul Walsher scoffs at that and says, what a foolish notion that we could somehow institute Jesus as, as Lord as though he wasn't beforehand. Whether he is recognized or not, he is Lord over all, both the righteous and the unrighteous. He is Lord. The problem is not that some people don't make him Lord. The problem is that they refuse to submit to him as Lord, that they refuse to obey him, that they reject his reign. It doesn't make his reign any less true. And it doesn't make the wrath that is to come any less true. Again, like children, they cover their faces thinking that if they ignore it, it's not true. And yet we know that it is. And we know that in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue confess this truth, that Jesus is Lord, that he is king of glory. The question is, what will it be for you? Will you bend the knee in worship and adoration and recognition of him as Lord and as Savior and as the Messiah and as the king of glory? Or will, as Paul Washer says, your knees be broken by God's wrath? 
will you be brought to your knees by the God who is sovereign, who is Lord of all, and who rightly calls people to account? That is the question. Jesus' entrance into the world does bring joy, but not apart from faith in him and trust in him. That is the message we need for today. That is the message we need for this season. That is the message that we need all year around. The message that Jesus Christ is not just a baby in a manger. He was that. That's a beautiful truth. But he is coming again one day, and as he sits now, as king of glory. Let's pray.